Our scripture reading this morning is from the third chapter of Ephesians, verses 14 through 21. You'll find those in your pew Bible on page 828. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, anything interesting happen with you this week? Uh, you know, when a snowstorm like that hits, you just want to get home. Can I get a witness on that? You just want to get home. Can I get a? Okay. And uh, I definitely wanted to get home. And like so many of you, how many of y'all had to get out of a car and walk for a little while? How many of y'all had to stay somewhere other than home that first night? Okay, a lot of you. Okay. Um, I know that uh, Randy Newman and Keith McLeod and Marjorie K. Nix are now uh, bonded in a special way, having spent the night at uh, his office at St. Vincent's and many, many other stories. We all have stories. In fact, we might hear uh, a few more uh, later on. And uh, heard about Patrick Ryan. Is Patrick in here this morning? Patrick, I heard. Yes, I know. I'm going to talk about you later. Um, but when you go through a snowstorm like that, you just want to get home. And I noticed that I had originally planned on, on, on not coming this Sunday, but I thought, I, I want to get home to the folks with whom I go through everything with. And, and so I, I wanted to be here today. That doesn't, I'm not saying that sound noble. I just really needed to be here Myself, but all the better because we have one of my truly one of my favorite preachers uh, preaching this morning, Dr. Ken Roxborough. Pleased to introduce him to you briefly. He's no stranger to a lot of you. He's leading a uh, Wednesday night equipping group right now on the book of Revelation. Uh, Ken is from uh, Scotland. You will notice that if you haven't heard him preach before. How many of y'all have heard Dr. Roxborough preach? Oh, a lot of you. Okay. Um, hails from Scotland, got his PhD uh, at University of Edinburgh, which is that's a good place to get a Ph.D. in theology or church history or whatever you might get it in. Uh, he pastored three churches over in Scotland and, and uh, then following that became president of a Scottish Baptist College there, which college over there means seminary here uh, as far as the theological education. So he really was president of the Scottish Theological Seminary there. And uh, just one day was on the Internet and found out about a place called Sanford University, and we were so fortunate to have him come and be with us to serve as the department chair in the Department of Religion. And he holds the Armstrong Chair of Religion, which I think there's only two actual chairs uh, uh, in the School of Liberal Arts, and he holds one of them. He is a prized member of, of the uh, Sanford community, of the faculty, so highly regarded, and also, as many of you know, a very, very fine preacher. So we're thrilled, Dr. Roxborough, for you to be here. Uh, I already heard about uh, his trials and travails uh, that day when he and Dr. McGinnis, some of you Sanford folks have had Scott McGinnis in class, and they walked up Columbiana Road in the snow and ice up to their homes uh, up there in Vestavia. But we're glad he made it and has made it here this morning, and we joyfully hear from Dr. Roxborough. 
Well, it is a joy to be with you this morning to share in worship and to bring God's Word to you. And thank you once again to Jim for his kind words of introduction. Appreciate them. Some years ago, my wife and I lived in a fishing community in Scotland, about 40 miles north of, of Aberdeen, where I was pastor. And our oldest daughter, Jennifer, was about eight years of age when my wife's mother came to visit. And not long after she had arrived in the house, uh, Jennifer said to her grand, Grand, do you want to go a walk? And what grandmother would not agree to do that for her granddaughter? Well, they went off to the shops in Broad Street. And they were passing by a, a toy shop when Jennifer stopped and turned in and said, It's in here, Gran, that we're going. So she went straight into the shop, she went straight to the counter and to the lady who owned the shop, and she simply said to her, She's here. That was all she needed to say. And so the lady turned and went to a shelf and brought a toy, gave it to my wife's mother, and said how much it was. Jennifer was confident that only if her gran was there, then the toy would be hers to take home. Now, it's not a perfect illustration of what prayer is like. It's got lots of theological holes within it. But the confidence of that little girl, that only if gran was there, things would change, her heartfelt desire would be met with confidence. It's a confidence that sometimes, if we're honest, our prayers do not possess. Now, I'm reluctant in many ways as a preacher to address the subject of prayer. I'm no expert in prayer. I've also heard a lot of sermons on prayer, and I've probably preached some of them down through the years, where they've been generating more feelings of guilt rather than encouragement. And that's the last thing that I want. It's one thing that Roman Catholics and Baptists have in common. We're good at expressing guilt to one another. I would rather hope and pray that as we think about rediscovering prayer, think about this passage of Scripture that Paul writes about in the context of prayer and knowing the love of God, that we would begin to see that prayer is a rediscovering of our relationship with God, which is not meant to be rushed and is meant to be enjoyed. The psalmist says, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. So like Paul in this passage, we come to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come through Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection. We come in the power of the Spirit and we approach the one we know as Abba and we enter into his presence and we experience his power. My favorite description of God is the one that talks about God as the three-mile-per-hour God. Now, that Jennifer, that little girl in Fraserburgh, is now 35 years of age. Hardly believe that I'm old enough to have a daughter. I know, I know, but that happens. Well, she's moved from negotiating the prices of toys. She moved on to running five 10K road races. She loves doing the big runs in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and in Newcastle. And what excites her most, and what she'll often text me about, will be that she shaved a few seconds off her personal best. Prayer is not that kind of experience. Prayer is not a race. Prayer is more a walking, a walking with God. Now, sometimes walking can be a joyful experience. Sometimes it can be painful. I mean, on Tuesday morning, I discovered the bad side of walking, when my colleague Scott McGuinness and myself decided to abandon his car and just walk. Now, he's, he's even taller, I think, than your pastor. 
and, and he strides out. And he's got 20 years in me, I reckon. So eventually, as we were going up Columbiana, you know that steep hill? It's even steeper than it once was, I tell you. In the snow and the ice and cars abandoned all over the place, I eventually said, Scott, you just press on upward. I'll go at my own pace. (laughs) We walk with the three-mile-per-hour God. We walk in His company. We walk in friendship. He's our friend. He's our companion. He's our Father. And we come into his presence and we express our love and our joy in knowing him. And we also come with confidence and boldness. And we pray to him and we bring our request to him, knowing that he's able to do far more than we sometimes ask or even imagine to ask. Now, Paul knew something about prayer. First time we encounter Paul after his conversion is when God tells Ananias, go and see Paul or Saul, as he was then. And behold, he is praying. It's a fascinating description that one of the consequences of coming to know God and being converted to Christ is that we pray. And Paul was a person of prayer. He was an activist, mind you. And activists are not known notoriously for being good at relaxed, meditative prayer. He was quick-tempered, critical, hardly the soil in which to grow the gentle plant of prayer. He was an intellectual of the highest nature. He he was somebody who who was used to rationalizing and arguing his case and working out problems for himself. But he discovered that he needed to pray. And so later on in Ephesians, near the end of the book, he says to the church in Ephesus, he says, pray and the Spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. And then he adds not as a kind of afterthought, but at the heart of his own experience. He says, and pray also for me. Prayer begins in a relationship with God. Prayer is rediscovered in that relationship with God. And prayer grows and deepens as our relationship with God develops. As we are rooted and grounded, says Paul in this passage, in the love of God towards us in that amazing love, that wondrous grace, that mercy that we've been singing so vividly about already this morning. As we are rooted and grounded and know the love of God towards us and are assured of that love, then we can come boldly and with confidence into His presence. Now, when I was in my late teens, I often got confused about prayer. I often felt guilty about prayer. I tried to pray I tried to time myself in prayer, you know, see if I could pray a little bit longer than I did the previous day. Then I read a book in my late teens by a Norwegian theologian called Oscar Hallesby. It was one of these books that had the intriguing title of prayer. You know, well, that's all it was. But in one of the chapters in that book, he said, prayer is helplessness. He wrote, it is only when we are helpless that we open our hearts to Jesus and let him help us in our distress according to his grace and mercy. Citing the book of Revelation 3.20, where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and lets me in, I will come and eat with them, and he with me. So Hallisby suggests, it is not our prayer that moves the Lord Jesus, it is Jesus who moves us to pray. When we recognize how great is the love that he has for you and me, when we recognize the depths of his devotion towards us, the only thing that we can do in response is to come with utter assurance 
that he will hear us even before we cry to him. Now, in prayer, we do cry out to the Lord, sometimes not just in helplessness, but actually in desperation. Another verse in the book of Revelation, where the church under persecution suddenly cries out, I, I, I like to think they're actually shouting out to God, how long, O Lord? I mean, when are you going to do something about our situation? Prayer is the ability to come into the presence of God and with assurance and boldness, even audacity, to express to God exactly how we feel. It may surprise you to know that in the book of the Psalms, there are more Psalms not of worship and thanksgiving, but of lament, of complaint, of questioning and confession. And often in the Psalms, you have Psalms that say, where are you, O Lord? How long are you going to do or not do what you're doing or not doing? When are you going to come and help me? God is big enough, and he loves us enough to be able to cope with our complaints. And if we really believe that God is able to hear us and we're willing to come to him and in honesty and also with audacity, pray to him and enter into a relationship with him, that doesn't ignore the difficulties of life, but brings these difficulties into his presence and spreads them before him and asks him to come to our aid and to our help. Now, prayer, if prayer is real and like that, will only develop in a relationship with God that is real and it is vital and has integrity. And that relationship with God is something that he has brought into existence through his demonstration of grace and mercy to us through Christ in the power of the Spirit. Prayer, earlier on in Ephesians, Paul says, is when we come being brought near the, by the blood of Christ and have access in one spirit to the Father. Prayer and worship and what we're doing Sunday by Sunday and day by day is realizing that prayer is a gift of grace. It's primarily not something that we do in our own strength. It is a gift that God gives to us when we are brought into this wonderful relationship with God as Father through Christ by the Spirit. And when we are rooted and grounded in love, when we begin to realize the dimensions of God's love towards us in Christ incarnate and crucified, realizing that he went to the depth of the cross of Calvary for us, then we know that he loves us, and we know that he's interested in us, and we know that we can come and bring our prayers towards him. In a fascinating essay, short essay, what are we doing when we pray? Jürgen Moltmann, the, the German theologian, compares and contrasts various postures that people have when they come before God in prayer. He talks about the Muslim position of falling on one's face in prayer, uh, prostrate, reminiscent of a slave's subservience before an Asiatic despot. Then he talks about the Western tradition of prayer, where, you know, in some communities of faith, when we say, let us pray, we automatically either go down on our knees or we kind of bow down, going into ourselves with humility and reverence, assuming an attitude of contrition, crouch down, sometimes as if we're doubled up in pain acting out our helplessness, our unworthiness, our humility. But then he says, look at the catacombs of Rome and Naples. 
Look at some of the images, the paintings that these early Christians painted of their worship experience. And he points out one, and there are several you can find. He points out one in which there is a woman depicted standing upright, head raised, eyes open, hands upraised, not in fear and in trembling, but with confidence, with audacity, with boldness coming to the throne of grace and crying out, Abba, Father. When we know the love of God towards us, we don't doubt his interest in us. We know that we all know the love of God towards us. We come with confidence and pray, Abba. Yet if we're honest, there are many people who have experienced not the love of fatherhood or motherhood at times, but physical sexual abuse from fathers. And many people will say they find it difficult to address God as father, to take the earthly experience of fatherhood, which has not been without faults and failings, and then to think through what it means to call God father. It's not an easy problem to resolve. The one thing that Paul says very clearly in this passage of Scripture, when he's talking about God, he calls him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about the fatherhood of God, we think primarily of that relationship which God the Father has with God the Son, who through eternity loved one another through the bond of the Holy Spirit. And through that bond of love within the triune Godhead, the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, and they are brought together in a closeness that we can only imagine and not fully describe. What Paul is saying about the Christian experience of prayer and worship is that we, through Jesus, have been brought into that adoptive, gracious relationship of love so that the Father loves us in the same way that he loves the Son. And we come through Jesus, and our prayers come through Jesus in and through the power of the Spirit, and we address them to the Father, and we know that we are heard, and we know that he cares. Now, that can bring a great sense of assurance into our minds and our hearts. We go away from thinking that we've got to win the favor of God before he'll listen to us. Sometimes used as an illustration, the, the illustration of marriage. I was married, well, by 37 years, come, come July the 30th. See, I remembered. I didn't forget. Um, and on that day of our, our marriage, my wife and I gave each other a ring that we still have and it still fits. <laughs> and I said, I give you this ring as a token of the covenant made between us this day, a pledge of our mutual love in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in one sense, I entered into a legal relationship with my wife. According to English laws, we were married just outside of London. But I have not lived, and we have not lived our marriage relationship on the basis of legal requirements, of conditionality, of obligations. We've tried to live our life on the basis of covenant, of the covenant promises that we make, and the covenant promises that we seek to keep, and the covenant love that we share with each other. That's the relationship that God has entered into with us. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. His oath, his covenant, his blood we sang about earlier on, have brought us into a relationship with himself. And if there are any conditions to be fulfilled, he's done all the fulfilling. 
so that he keeps us close to himself. He brings us close to himself. And I, although my, my, my life has lived with gratitude and I seek to live a life of discipleship, my relationship with God in terms of his eternal love towards me is not based upon how good I am or what I have achieved. His love is based upon Christ and his love for me and the indwelling of the power of the Spirit. That's why Paul makes so much in this chapter, in, this, in this, these verses, in this prayer about the love of God. He wants us to know the dimensions of the love of God. Because if we know the length and the depth and the height of the love of God, then we know that that love will never let us go. That love is so high because it came from heaven. That love is so deep because it took Christ to the cross of Calvary. That love is so broad because he has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And on that basis of the love of God towards us, we can be filled with the knowledge of that love and to know that love which surpasses our greatest imagination. I sense at times, however, that we struggle with that. And because we struggle with that, we struggle with prayer. For many years, one of the most popular series produced in American television was Matt Groening's The Simpsons. I think it was popular because of the way it addressed a whole series of of issues, often relating to self-esteem, failure, underachievement. In one episode, Homer undergoes a a dramatic transformation when his baldness is cured. He suddenly acquires a new status within the organization. He's upgraded to an executive position. But suddenly his baldness returns and his status vanishes. Never mind, his wife tells him, we all love you just as you are. And that is the good news of the gospel this morning. That's the good news that first drew you to Jesus. That's the good news that sustained you. That's the good news that will be with you in all the dark days that lie ahead. God loves you. And as we are rooted and grounded in that love, as we are filled with a knowledge of that love, then that love draws us into a deeper and more wonderful relationship with God. So that as we come before God, rooted and grounded in love, We are strengthened, says Paul, in our inner being through the gift of his Spirit. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, God has poured out his love into our hearts through the gift of the Spirit. See how all these things are kind of building up, building blocks, one example after another, one metaphor, one analogy, to try and help us to understand the depth of God's love towards us that will never, never fail us. And in the knowledge of that love, we come in worship and we come in prayer. We come in prayer for ourselves, but we come in prayer for one another. We sometimes pray, Lord, I believe, but will you help my unbelief? There are sometimes we pray and we don't have words to actually know what to say. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. He says there are times when all we can give in the presence of God are groans that words cannot express, tears coming into the presence of God. In some mysterious way, Paul says, the Spirit of God takes these prayers and he makes them understandable 
to the heart of the Father. It's because we know that we are loved that we come. It's because we know we are loved that we don't despair. It's because we know that we are loved that we keep pressing on. And we ask sometimes for things that seem beyond (laughs) the asking. But Paul says that's all right. Because the one who is at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly more than all we ask, think, or imagine. I think that Paul put that in because he reckoned there'd be some, t- some people in Ephesus who would say, ah, you don't know what you're talking about, Paul. <laughs> well, he did. Paul did. And he wants us to know that we can have that kind of assurance. He wants us to know that the love of God towards us will not fail us. And that whatever the future of this week holds, and this month, and this year, that God is with us, and God loves us. And because we know he loves us, we come before him and we pray, Abba, hear my prayer. Let my cries come before you. Will you pray with me? Lord, often we feel like praying, Teach us to pray. Teach us the depths and the dimensions of your love that we'll never give up on being helpless before you, but in our helplessness know that you're able to do more for us than we ask, think, or imagine. And to you be glory now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.